Mark 15. <laughs> and the ice cream van. Um, just while the ice cream, cream van's going. Um, just so you've got a, a way of where, we, uh, an idea of where we're going forwards. Um, we're finishing off chapter 15 tonight. We uh, will be digging into chapter 16 tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, next week. <laughs> My bad. Um, chap digging into chapter 16 next week. And um, in Mark's gospel, there is the whole thorny subject of the extended ending. If you, you read a King James version, then um, Mark's gospel goes on right the way through to verse um, 18 or 20. Um, in other versions, it stops at verse 8. Most versions have it in brackets. And I did consider spending a whole week talking about that issue, why such problems exist, how they're resolved, and what have you. I think what I'm probably going to do is I'm going to probably do that on a Tuesday, because it's a good time for discussions and what have you. So if anyone's really keen to know, then we'll do it on the Tuesday following. But otherwise, I think that... Um, I think that I'll mention it briefly and we will just do the first eight verses, which will be the following week. So then in two weeks' time, we'll do a summary of the whole of Mark, which is my, my typical practice at the end of a book, to sum up the book, to go skim over the whole thing retrospectively. And then we will have completed Mark's Gospel. And then we'll have two weeks of um, a breather between series, um, when we'll be doing, there'll be one-off sermons. And then uh, after that, we will be starting on the 1st of July, our Isaiah series. So that's where we're moving forwards. Right. So Mark chapter 15, I'll read through the text and then we will uh, we'll pray and we'll study. Reading from verse 42. Oh, actually, no, reading from verse 40. We didn't, we didn't finish off from verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the mother, uh, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when the evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. After, and after summoning the centurion, he asked whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and Taking him down, wrapped him in, in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and I pray that our time together tonight in the text would be profitable and would be um, transformational that we would hear your word and we would be impacted by it and we would be changed by it. 
For your glory we ask this. Amen. Amen. So most versions have a little paragraph break between 41 and 42. I like to have it between 39 and 40. You have the mention of the women in verse 40 and the mention of the women again in verse 47, which kind of acts as a little inclusio while the women are, uh, are, are mentioned, it's like bookends holding the, the text together. So I think this is verse 40 to 47 is more of a complete passage. Now there's a few things to say about verse 40. Um, we see the women here mentioned by name, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joses and Salome. So three of them specifically mentioned by name. And in addition, there are other women mentioned um, who had been there in Galilee for the ministry and had come up at this point to Jerusalem. Now, um, there's a few things I want to note about this. Firstly, when you have people specifically named, there is a reason for specifically naming them. They were people who were known. And Mark's audience would have had people who knew uh, these, people, these ladies or knew their families, perhaps their children. I think specifically perhaps their children because with one of them we're told Mary, the mother of James the Younger and Joseph. So if people knew James the Younger and Joseph, they could have said to her, is it true about your mother? And the whole point of naming people is that they are eyewitnesses. They saw something. Their testimonies can be verified. You don't just say, oh, well, someone saw it. You say, well, this person saw it, and then you can check on their testimony. So the naming of people in a general sense is something that really gives us great legitimacy to the claims that are unfolding at this point. The second thing to note is under Jewish law, for an event to be legitimized, there had to be witnesses. But women didn't count as witnesses. And I think what we need to understand here is that what Mark is doing in his gospel is a very radical thing. Well, all the gospel writers do this. And what we see is we see the women here and this is why, again, at the end of the verse 41, there's the reference to other women as well. The women here are the ones who have stayed closest. Their society was prone to say, oh, well, we're not sure about your testimony. And yet with the resurrection, the first witnesses were the women. Where are the guys at this point? Where's John? Where's Peter? Where are they? Right here, right now. There's women. And that's a great credit. And I think it speaks um, in many senses to some typical female qualities, the sense of empathy and nurturing. But at this point, the ladies stepped up to the plate and the men were put to shame. And the Gospels are all very clear on this point. And more so than that, and we'll see this more when we come to the resurrection, but in God's eyes, their testimony and their witness is equally valid. And that, that uh, is something that at the time was radical. It's something that was uh, controversial. And, you know, the idea that the Bible is this patriarchal book that puts down women is nonsensical. It was one of the most radicalizing and liberalizing books for women because it did this kind of thing. It gave them their place and their role. 
as co-heirs of grace, people who were saved equally from, from, uh, um, as the men. And, and so they were in a much better position than the men in this situation. The other thing to note is though they're in a better position than the men, they're not in a great position. Look what's happening here. They're looking on from a distance. Now this, this may be reaching a little bit, maybe reaching a little bit, but it's very interesting to me. We're going to reference Isaiah 53 in a minute, um, very briefly. But Mark's gospel and his use of the Old Testament has fascinated me. When he was going through the early parts of Mark, and I'll mention this in our summary in a couple of weeks' time, but when we're going through the early parts of Mark, Mark relied very heavily on Isaiah. And the reason was is that Isaiah spoke, where he was referencing back to Exodus, of a second Exodus, just as there had been an Exodus previously, where the, the Jewish people had been freed from slavery in Egypt and gone to the Promised Land. That in the same way that there was going to be a new Exodus where the Jewish people would be free from their sin, free from their iniquity. And Mark heavily relies upon Isaiah. I mean, really heavily. We referenced it multiple times. He, he, he pointed to the deity of Christ in Isaiah. He pointed to the fact that, uh, that Jesus was, was, te- was, was the fulfillment of the second exodus, um, the, the uh, freedom from slavery to sin. But what's fascinating, fascinating to me, is that when we come to the passion, and Mark's passion is as famous as anybody else's for the detail to all the the suffering of Jesus, he doesn't go to Isaiah 53 barely at all. And clearly he's aware of Isaiah and he knows it. And Isaiah 53 is, is the clearest indication. And if you've been with us for the last few months as we've gone through these passages, you'll know that rather than turning to Isaiah 53, Mark has consistently gone to various different lament psalms. Now, I don't have a firm conclusion on this, but I have, it's really intrigued me. And I think that my understanding of it is that Isaiah 53 is part of this... Um, this great Jewish heritage, this Jewish Messiah and what have you. But the lament psalms are just that bit more universal. They're, they're earthly, they're worldly in, in the purest sense of the word. That, you know, we, we took our time, didn't we? When we went through some of these psalms, we, we, we went back and we looked at them and we looked at Psalm 22, remember, just a few weeks ago. And we read it and I said to you at the time, as we go through this, pretend you don't know what Jesus said on the cross. Pretend you don't know that it references him. And just feel the pain of the lamenter. Understand and empathize with him. And I think that for Mark writing to this Gentile audience, there was something that they could connect with more in the Lament Psalms. And all of that is by way of introduction simply to say, let's turn to Psalm 38. And I do think there is one last reference to Lament Psalms. The burial of Jesus, just as you're turning there, the burial of Jesus is, um, is the end of his humiliation him being humbled through 
the suffering leading to the cross, the cross itself, obviously, his death on the cross, and then, of course, his burial is the end of his humiliation. We have the resurrection and the exaltation, the ascension to come. But also, I think that we'll see in a moment that by being buried in a rich man's tomb, the burial also is that crossing point where it is the beginning of things pointing upwards and the beginning of exaltation. So this is perhaps our last possible reference to Lament Psalms. So let's just read through it. We won't spend as much time as normal as my link here is not dubious, but less clear anyway. Um, Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. What's interesting in so many of the lament psalms is that the psalmist is absolutely clear that he's done nothing wrong. I mean, again and again and again, Lord, I'm trying to keep your ways, I'm trying to do your will, and my enemies are against me, they're opposed to me because I do your will. And what's interesting here is we have a psalm where there's a degree of repentance. He says later in verse 18, I confess my iniquity, I'm sorry for my sin. And so the anger of God against him is very much felt. I think it's interesting, our first point to note in Psalm 38, that Psalm 38 is dealing with somebody who is experiencing the wrath of God, or who certainly feels as if they're experiencing the wrath of God, which as we've seen in our studies is exactly what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. Not for any wrong he'd done, but he was experiencing very much the wrath of God. And so we have a very typical lament psalm type material. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, no health in my bones, because of my sin. Notice there the reference to him being sin, hence the, uh, the, the wrath upon him. My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds sting and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed, and I groan because of the tumult in my heart. Again, we see just very typical uh, lament psalm type of talk about suffering with this, not unique, but very, um, pardon me, uh, this less usual twist whereby he is aware of his own sin putting him in this situation. Now, at this point, many of you could say, well, obviously, this has no application to Jesus at all. And do remember two things. Firstly, the the lament psalms didn't have any application to Jesus at all in one sense. They were the laments of the lamenter. But Jesus came to fulfill portions of those. And I think that what, what, is, what Mark is doing here, Jesus hasn't said anything about Psalm 38. I think what Mark is doing, and we'll see the link in a minute, but I think what Mark is doing in linking to this is he's linking us to someone who is under the wrath of God because of their sin. And Jesus is the twist, if you like. He's under the wrath of God because of our sins. And so I think it's a perfectly good and valid uh, application of the text, just in a different way. O Lord, all my longing is before you, my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails, and the light of my eyes is also gone from me. Now here's the key verse, 
verse 11. Let's pay attention to verse 11. My friends and my companions stand aloof, or far off, from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Is that not exactly the situation that Mark tells us? His friends and companions are aloof. They're kind of there, but they're kind of not there. They're alongside, but they're at a distance. In Mark's Gospel, that would be the, the women that we mentioned. And he says, my nearest kin are far off. His disciples, nowhere to be seen. Is that not exactly what Mark is referencing to? Now, I accept that it's, it's, by the way, if you read stuff on this, it's a complicated procedure to decide, you know, is the New Testament author alluding to referencing an Old Testament text? And people, some people have all sorts of checklists for, for kind of working out whether it's something we're reading into it, whether it's legitimate. All I'll say about this is I think because Mark has so heavily relied on lament psalms, this will be the fourth or fifth in the Passion sequence, I think that there's a strong tendency for me to think that this is different, uh, this is, that this is uh, referenced, rather, again. And those who seek my life lay their snares, those who seek my hurt speak of ruin, and meditate treachery all day long. Yeah, he's certainly been plotted against him, hadn't they? And I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man does not open his mouth. Notice the reference there, mute man not opening his mouth. I have not, I've become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It's you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, let them not rejoice over me and boast against me when my foot slips. And so there is this waiting on God. It's interesting. Chronologically, we're coming up to Friday sundown. We had all the build-up on Thursday. The crucifixions happened during the day on Friday, which we call Good Friday. The Sabbath starts at Friday sundown. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, Saturday, brief mention in Matthew, nothing anywhere else. It's just this time of silence during the Sabbath. And it's just this waiting on God when God will do the resurrection. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sins. My foes are vigorous and they are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. And those who render me evil for good, accuse me because I follow after good. You can certainly see the similarities and the parallels in verses 19 and 20, but I want to focus especially now on the conclusion, okay? Do not forsake me, O God. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to save me, O Lord, my salvation. What a fitting end to the lament psalm references of Mark's passion. He said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Referencing Psalm 22. And here again, he, there is this, this repetition in this psalm. God, don't forsake me. Be my salvation. Be my deliverance. And within a short space of time, as we're going to see next time, God does deliver him from the grave. I think that is a fairly, the best defense I can give of him referencing Psalm 38 here. Anyway, back to Mark 15. Back to Mark 15. So we're now in verse 42. 
When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that's the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay. So we have the, it's the day of preparation, which means it's basically the daytime before the Sabbath. Remember the Jewish frame of reckoning was that each day started in the evening and ended in the evening. We, we, we don't do it that way. Obviously, we do morning to morning, but they did evening to evening. When it came from Genesis 1 and creation. Um, so he, the Sabbath began on Friday when the sun went down. So different times depending on the time of year. So the day of Friday was the day of preparing everything ready for the Sabbath. And it's interesting that there's preparation to be done here. According to Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23, a body had to be buried on the day of the death. It couldn't be buried afterwards. It had to be buried on the day of the death. And he's now died and the Sabbath is coming up and this had to be done quickly. The disciples are nowhere to be found. The women are holding off at a distance. And so quite surprisingly, quite shockingly really, and, and I think, by the way, with Joseph of Arimathea in the center of this section with the women bookending, we've got absent disciples, then we have the women either side, and right in the middle here we have this amazing man, Joseph of Arimathea. We're told he's a respected member of the council. A respected member means he would have come from a good family. The council is a reference to the Sanhedrin. Now, we know the Sanhedrin. They're the ones who just had Jesus falsely tried and handed over to the Romans. And yet, in the midst of that evil group and their rejection of Christ, there was one man who, we're told specifically, was looking for the kingdom. And I think that's a lovely phrase. I think it's a lovely phrase because Jesus, when he first came, remember, this is Mark's gospel. Mark's dealing with the words and the terms that he's used. He's got his flow, his themes. It began in chapter 1 and with Jesus saying, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to offer the kingdom of God and Israel rejected it. And this man, Joseph of Arimathea, he was someone who was always looking for the kingdom of God. Now why did the rest of the Sanhedrin not receive the message of the kingdom? Because they weren't interested in God's kingdom. They were interested in religion. They were interested in their positions, their structure, their temple, the way they did things, their positions of power. They were interested in their control of the people, their teachings from their favorite rabbis. And the actual main focus, the coming of the Messiah and the establishing of the kingdom and the worshiping of God was really a fallen into the background. But Joseph wasn't like them. Now, this is a warning to us. Uh, it's easy for people to look at churches that are perhaps more traditional, have lost their way. We can look at Episcopalians and Methodists and the like, and we can say, oh, you know, all this false liberal doctrine coming in. And we can think that somehow we're immune. You know what? We can be obsessed with our own setup, our own traditions, our own councils and committees and our own power and our own way of doing things that change can be offensive to us. 
And Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is more important. It's the way of God. It's following God. It's pursuing God. All this paraphernalia, there's places for it. You know? I mean, you know, we got, you know, we want to worship God, so we choose the type of songs we sing, and you sing certain types of songs here, and you go to other churches, sing different types of songs. You know, it's fine. You've got to choose something. But we, we all have our traditions, but the traditions aren't the issue. The issue is Jesus. And the second we take our eyes off him, then we become people of religion. We become people who can start to die in our core, and we can become people who vociferously rebuke more obvious sins while nurturing our own pride and our own selfishness. But Joseph, he was a true believer. He believed in the kingdom coming and he knew there was more to Jesus. I'm not sure if this meant that he'd accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Perhaps if he thought about it at this precise moment with Jesus dead, he perhaps thought not. But his, his priority on the kingdom of God was such that he knew to do the right thing and not to glorify and revel in the death of a godly man. And so it says he took courage and went to Pilate. Folks, that is one of the biggest understatements of this gospel. His colleagues, who he is part of the council with, he is in charge with that council of all the religious dealings of Israel, all of those people, and he has basically not just stood out of line. If you pardon my analogy, it's almost as if he's walked out from the midst of them, turned his back on them, and almost turned round and given some rude symbol at them. This is the hugest possible insult that he could do to his fellow Sanhedrin members. Courage is an understatement. He risked not only his, his livelihood, not only his position, he risked his family's safety, and he risked his future. But it was the right thing to do. As again, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, that body needed to be buried. He knew Jesus had done no wrong. He knew they put in a righteous man to death, and so he went to do what he had to do. What a courageous man. And then we get embarrassed about sharing the gospel. And so we have the details. Pilate was surprised to hear he'd already died. Crucified people could take a lot longer. We've already spoken about the procedure. Push up on the block, they come down. They push up, take a breath, come down. Until slowly they run out of strength and they suffocate. But Jesus had been scourged so badly, he wasn't able to carry his cross. And so his death was somewhat quicker than had been anticipated by Pilate. So Pilate checks up, he gets the centurion. Notice it says the centurion, referencing one specifically. This will almost certainly be the one who in our last passage said, surely this was the Son of God. And he checks and finds the corpse is dead. And so I think with that centurion, we've got a willing party in making sure the body is appropriately buried. And so the centurion, he... uh, he helps to get the body 
to Joseph and Pilate agrees. They take the linen, they wrap him in the linen, and they laid him in a tomb that's been cut out of the rock. The important thing to note about that is that the uh, kind of tomb that is literally cut out of a rock was by far the most expensive way of doing it. The fact that Joseph had one ready does not indicate in any way, shape, or form that he had any anticipation of this happening. It simply means that he gave up his family tomb, which was his by right, to a stranger, to Jesus. Again, just an incredible act of faith by this righteous man. And it fulfills Isaiah 53 and verse 9, and I'm not going to go there. I think that um, we, you know, the, the psalm reference was more crucial, but just to read it to you, it says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. His burial in a rich man's tomb was another one of the multiple fulfillments of Isaiah 53. And as I said already, it's that dividing line where we go from the humiliation of Christ, him being humbled, him being crushed, him suffering, to the beginning of his exaltation. This is the first step up. And then we're soon going to have his resurrection, and then he will ascend to be at the right hand of the Father. And so they rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And that was primarily done so that it would uh, protect the body from wild animals and what have you. And then we're told Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. And so we end this passage as we began it with faithful women at a distance, aloof, as Psalm 38 put it, but there nevertheless. Where the other disciples have fled, they were to be faithful. Luke's Gospel tells us that they were keen that there would be the proper embalming of the body, and uh, they were ready to do that as soon as Sabbath was over, which is why they went to the tomb immediately after the Sabbath. But for now, they're making a note of where it is. And Mark, who doesn't make any reference to that embalming, he's simply making the point. These are the faithful women. Now, um, I didn't want to get into resurrection tonight. Obviously, that's for next week's passage and, and what have you. And it's a slightly shorter passage today. Um, so I just want to end by simply saying this. We have in this passage the examples of many people. Mark has used a couple of times in his gospel the absenteeism of people to make a point. And I think no more, no more so here than with the disciples. Disciples who followed him, lived with him, shared food with him, learned from him, when the rubber hit the road, they were gone. These women were faithful, and they were there. And Joseph of Arimathea is almost, if you like, equivalent in Mark's Gospel of the Good Samaritan. Just the last person you expect stepping up to the plate. Folks, we can talk about our love for God, our desire to follow Jesus, all we like. But it's not until your world comes crashing down that you know if any of that's true. And these people here, 
from the absentees to those who are there, they not just are there as an example, they present a challenge to us. Are we going to stand with Jesus when no one else stands with us? Are we going to do what's right when everything, our lives, our livelihood, everything is on the line? Being a Christian isn't simply acknowledging a few truths and turning up to church once a week. It's about devotion to Christ in every circumstance, in every situation. I pray that we would be found faithful at all times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And as I said, Lord, may these people be an example to us. And Lord, I know what it is to be in horrendous circumstances and to some degree to fail. To drop the ball, to compromise, to not trust as I should. Lord, may we never do that. May I never do it again. May we trust in you always for all things at all times, believing that you are faithful and that you are sovereign and you're in control. Amen. Amen.